Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. For those of you who aren't familiar with our authors this evening, Patty Callahan Henry is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of several novels, including Surviving Savannah and Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She is the recipient of the Christie Award, the Harper Lee Award for Alabama's Distinguished Writer of the Year, and Becoming Mrs. Lewis was selected for the Alabama Library Association Book of the Year. She is also the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online web show and podcast, Friends in Fiction. A full-time author and mother of three, she lives in Alabama and South Carolina with her family. And our host this evening is Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's Top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of Lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She serves on multiple governing and advisory boards and holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Patty and Deborah are going to discuss Patty's latest novel, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, and after that we will open it up to audience questions. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Patty Callahan Henry and Deborah Goodrich Royce. So thank you all for coming. This is uh, one of the highlights of the summer for me, and I think for many of you. And we get a number of people who come over and over, and, but we always get new faces, which is really fun. And Patty, you have brought new people to us tonight. So thank you. I will start by saying I really love this book, but I love all your books, Patty. So you gave me some questions. And the first thing you pointed me to talk about, which is my favorite thing when I was raising my daughters, like what's the difference between the plot and what's the difference between the theme of a book? And I always use The Wizard of Oz, you know, she's following the yellow brick road, but the theme is no place like home. What is the book about and what is the book really about? So start there. The people are laughing now on Friends in Fiction, we ask, and we asked you when you were there, what is the book about and then what is it really about? And I love that because sometimes when we're writing the book, we don't even know what it's really about, do you find that with your work? Absolutely. Like you find yeah. out about, I usually about three-fourths of the way through, I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> what I'm writing about, right? Like I think I have the plot in mind. Yeah. And then I, so I'm going to tell you what it's about, um, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I discovered it's really about. So we're going to leave Rhode Island, come with me. Mm -hmm. We are going to go to England, 
we are going to go to Bloomsbury, England on Mecklenburg Square, right outside of London. The year is 1939 when we meet Hazel, who is 14 years old, and Flora Lee, who is five years old. An edict has just come down from the government. All children must be sent away from the cities to, to the country to be kept safe from the imminent and expected German bombs. This is called Operation Pied Piper. Over four days, 800,000 children, 800,000 children in four days were sent away. They were sent away on trains wearing a backpack, a luggage tag wrapped around their neck with their name and what school they came from and their hometown, a gas mask, and a postcard to send to their parents when they arrived where they would end up because nobody knew where they would end up. Well, Hazel and Flora Lee were lucky. They ended up with the Aberdeen family in a small hamlet right outside of Oxford called Finzi, where I told Stephanie she must go the minute she arrives in Oxford. It is the most darling hamlet. It is a very real place. And Hazel, to keep her little sister, Flora Lee, calm after being exiled from their family, makes up a fairy tale world. A fairy tale world where only the two of them can go. It is a secret between Hazel and Flora Lee. Nobody else knows about it. They go there at night, they walk in the woodlands, they sit by the riverside, and they pretend to be in Whisperwood. A year goes by, and the unthinkable happens when Flora Lee disappears. It is assumed she has drowned in the river, and Hazel carries great and immense guilt. She believes that Flora Lee went to look for Whisperwood. 20 years goes by, the book opens, Hazel is working in an antiquarian bookshop. When she opens a package, she opens the brown parchment paper, she shoves aside the beautiful hand-drawn illustrations by Pauline Baines, and she sees an, a book of fairy tales written by an American author called Whisperwood and the River of Stars. The fairy tale world, only she and Flora Lee. That is what the book is about, and I think in the end, I knew it was going to be about sisters and a mystery, like yours was about murder, you knew that part. But what it ended up being about more than anything is that moment when the right book shows up in your life at the right time, right? That book that at that moment is exactly what you needed at a crossroads or a moment when you didn't feel understood or you felt alone or you had to make a decision. And so it is very much about the power of story in our lives as well as a mystery. It is about love, it is about guilt and the guilt that we often carry that we don't need to, that keeps us from being who we want to be and doing what we want to do in our lives. So what was the spark or the genesis for you that kind of took you in this direction of, of the two sisters and really the magical world that, that Hazel creates? One of my favorite subjects is, um, and we talked about it with you, which is where do stories come from, right? Your inspiration was a real life events in Refrain. Thank you. And um, it, so that was a real thing and that a real thing was the inspiration for this. And sometimes we can say where the inspiration came from and sometimes we don't know till later and we can look back. Um, sometimes it's a lightning bolt, like becoming Mrs. Lewis was a lightning bolt for me. I'm going to write about this woman. I'm going to write this story from her point of view and that was that. But this story came to me in little C, but I can tell you the very first spark. 
I was doing some research for a book I wrote called Once Upon a Wardrobe. And in Once Upon a Wardrobe, it is the seven events in C.S. Lewis's life that I can see and scholars can see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So as we know, that's where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy came from is Operation Pied Piper, where they sent the children away to live in the country. They show up at the old professor's house. So of course I knew about that, but I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know that Operation Pied Piper was the name. I'm going to give you a little dinner party trivia. That's where Paddington came from, too. The little name tag on him said, yeah. take care of this bear. He was an Operation Pied Piper evacuee. Um, so, and so were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And when I heard the word Pied Piper, being a great lover of myth and fairy tale and legend, I thought to myself, that is not a good story. The Pied Piper is not a good story. Like, we know the picture of the Piper playing the flute and the children following him. So, I, as we also know, most legends and myths and fairy tales are pretty gruesome in their original <laughs> forms. And I went back and I read The Pied Piper, and sure enough, it is a German legend. This is World War II, and this is an operation to keep children safe. It is a German legend about a piper who is called to a German village to remove the rats. He plays the flute, he plays the pipe, and the rats leave. The piper goes to the mayor and says, pay up. And the mayor says, no. This is the reader of Rich Virgin. The mayor says, no. And so the piper plays the flute, and all the children in the village follow him out of the village. And they disappear forever <laughs> and drown in the river Wyvern. <laughs> what the heck? Why did they name this operation to keep children safe? <laughs> this terrible German legend. And that was the inspiration, yeah. the dichotomy of that, the di you know, the, the, the rub of naming something to keep children safe after a legend that of drowned and disappeared children. Yeah, it, it is pretty dark. I know. <laughs> so I still haven't found out why they did that, but I, I think somebody was in a rush. And just <laughs> so why did you pick specifically Bloomsbury to have them centered in their original home, and then Binzi? Why those two places? They were very, sometimes things rise up out of the story, as you know, that you didn't expect. But those two things were very deliberate. Um, I wanted this to be very much a story inside of a story. I wanted you to read about a fairy tale while almost feeling like you're in one. And so every place I chose was a little bit story drenched, right? We were talking about the Catskills and how every cottage up there seems to have a story. And it's the same. Bloomsbury is where the Bloomsbury group is from. Mecklenburg Square has its own stories. And I wanted the girls to live there. And then Binzi itself, this very real Hamlet, is also soaked in story. It is where Lewis Carroll wrote much of Alice in Wonderland. There is a magic well, a treacle well, in Binzi that is ancient and is said to have healed many people. They say um, Catherine of Aragon went there to when she wanted to get pregnant and could not. And it is the treacle well in Alice in Wonderland where the dormouse lives at the bottom of the well. It is where C.S. Lewis and his compatriots would often sit at the pub called The Perch and talk about story and write. 
It is where Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote one of his most famous poems, which is The Poplars of Zinzi. And it is where the patron saint of Oxford itself, her name is St. Fridefly, has her church. So Binzi not only was in my favorite countryside, the Oxfordshire countryside, it is a land that already had so much story around it so that I could have stories inside stories inside. I wanted it to feel like a nesting doll of stories. Well, I'm going to go back to the book in a minute, but now I want to know about Patty. You are clearly an Anglophile. So from Alabama to the UK, what, what is your path and what, what draws you there? Oh, so I'm not from Alabama. I can talk like it, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I grew up outside Philadelphia okay. in Narbury, Pennsylvania, which is on the main line. Um, when I was 12 years old, my dad was a pastor. We moved to South Florida, which we all know is in the South that isn't Southern. And I lived there just for my high school years. And then I went to Auburn University. Um, Bore Eagle. Dang, all the way from Rhode Island. I see you. Um, and then I moved to Atlanta. I was a nurse. I was, um, but I've always been fascinated with England. My dad went to school in Scotland. Um, I would read about it. And when I wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis, and I visited there before. I'd been to London. I'd been to Ireland. I'm a Callahan. My daughter was an Irish dancer. So we visited England and Ireland many times. Um, but when I wrote Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I did, went there for my research a few times. And I fell so madly in love with the landscape. I don't know how to explain it. It was as if I had lived there before. Um, it, it, it brought up in me this kind of yearning to be there and to be outside. So I, when I went to write Once Upon a Wardrobe, I wrote that during COVID so I could visit the countryside again without leaving the country. Trying to decide where to put my evacuee children, I knew that I would put it in that countryside that I loved so much. And there's something about, I mean, probably because of, I'm of English descent and Irish descent, but there's something about the land, ancient stories that rise up out of that land that are endlessly fascinating to me. Um, you know, if you look at the 20th century in Oxford, in the Oxfordshire countryside, probably some of our fam most famous and favorite literature has risen up out of that landscape. And Absolutely. I'm a lover of novels that take place in real places. And you write real place beautifully. And the well of St. Frideswide, and I was not familiar, I just love the name Frideswide. And, and the, her, the meaning of it is even better. The literal meaning of Frideswide is my favorite. It means strong peace. Yes. Isn't that amazing? Strong peace. So you have Hazel grow up, back to the characters. This terrible thing happens, this loss of her sister, this disappearance, which is naturally shattering, and she's 14, or 15 by then, 15 by then. She grows up to become an antiquarian bookseller. Uh, talk about why that career. So I love this question, <laughs> uh, because I think it's happened to all of us, which is, what is often called a shadow artist, or um, yeah. when we surround ourselves 
with the things we love, but we're scared to do the thing. Right? I've done it. You've done it. Um, I'm betting. And I feel like what, what I wanted for her was, what I knew happened to her was that when she made up this fairy tale and her sister, and it was their secret for a year, it was their gentle and, and safe place. When she believes that it made her sister disappear and probably drown or disappear in the woodlands, she can't create anymore. She believes that her imagination caused something terrible. So she shuts herself off from anything of the imaginary world. She shuts herself off from story, from making up stories, and yet she surrounds herself with them. She works in an antiquarian bookshop. She's an avid reader. She collects pens. That's how she meets her almost fiance. Um, it's, she collects journals. Empty journals are all over the house. She collects inkwells. And she hangs out in coffee shops like the Laguerre, where writers hang out. So this is her world. She is dating a professor of literature. She surrounds herself with this and yet will not allow herself mm -hmm. to do it. And I wanted her to be in that place where whatever happened next would shatter that safety and that she would have to make a decision whether to become something new and take the chance or just stay in this kind of shadowy place where she would not become or do what she loved. So when the American novel lands in, in parchment paper with the beautiful illustrations. Mm -hmm. you, you picked an American to write it. I mean, why not someone from another part of England? Because it, I mean, it's a, a shock when she opens that package. So why an American? I wanted it to be so far, I think sometimes I can't say why, because sometimes, as you know, we aren't deliberate. <laughs> we can only look back and see why. Um, so the author who wrote the, the fairy tale of Whisperwood is American and lives in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. As if there's another Cape Cod. She lives in Cape Cod. <laughs> and um, Cape Cod is where I spent my summers when I was growing up. And it is the place in the late 60s and early 70s when I was a child where I felt exactly how Hazel and Flora Lee felt about the natural world. Mm -hmm. It is the place where I would run through the cranberry bogs and, and make up, believe that I could enter through a portal to another world. It was where I would spend hours reading at the edge of a lake. It was where I believed that the unseen was as real as the seen. It was where I believed that the invisible world was waiting just for me. Then you find out nothing's waiting for you. But, like, I believed that the whole world was waiting for me, and, and it would soon magic shimmering doors would open up and I would find my way. And because I wanted Whisperwood to feel that way, I set my author in the land that did that. So Hazel, it's, it's Hazel's story yeah. in many ways, but it isn't always Hazel's point of view. So talk a little bit about structure and how you go along. Do you know from the get-go or does it happen as you're going along that you're adding other points of view? I am not, are you an outliner? No. Neither am I. Okay. With my people. So, like you know, Kristen Harmel, one of our Fab Four and Friends of Fiction, she outlines her entire novel to the T. 
So there's no right way, wrong way to do things. Mary Kay doesn't even know what she's doing and somehow writes a whole book, right? Mm -hmm. So if you line up all of us and talk about how we do it, it's so different. I'm not a big outliner. I am for the historical period because I know what happens when in history, but not for how it goes down. So um, the very first scene I wrote is one of the first scenes in the book, which is when Hazel makes up the fairy tale world for Floralee. That was the first scene I wrote. I wrote it by hand up in the mountains when the idea first started bubbling. And then I just went from there. And I knew that I, here are the only things I knew. I knew I didn't want it to be from the adult's point of view. So much of that time period is written from the adult point of view. Or the mom having to make the decision to give her kids up for Operation Pied Piper, or a spy, or a soldier. I wanted to explore what it felt like to be exiled from your family and what you would do about it. But then I wanted us to see Hazel 20 years later and how it affected her. So we hear from Hazel as a 14 and 15 year old girl and then we hear from her as a 35 year old woman working in a bookshop and, and, and about to embark on a new season of her life. She's just gotten a job with Sotheby's. She thinks she's about to be engaged. Is she willing to blow all of that up to find out the truth? So originally, I wrote, I thought I would write all of 1939 and 1940 and watch what happened to Hazel Florley and then jump to 1960. But as I started to work on the novel, I realized that we needed it to be more, which is much harder to write, as you know, to stitch together those times. So then I started going back and forth in time, but from the same person's point of view. So I'm not head jumping there and staying there, but there, soon you need to hear from someone else. And you do. And mm -hmm. so the first person you hear from is Peggy, the American author, um, and then from someone else that would give away the book. Right, yeah, don't give that away. Yeah. And the 20 year distance, why did you pick 20? Why not 10 years later when she was 25? That is a good question. Hardly anybody asked me that. Because 1960 is the year that England began to change dramatically. Mm -hmm. It is really the first year that they felt like, because they had back-to-back -back wars. So they were World War I, then a very little time until all of a sudden they were back in it. And 1960, even though the war had ended in the 40s, 1960 is when everything began to change. The hemlines were rising, the music was changing, the next generation was coming up that had never seen war and had a different view of things. Um, Finally, the potholes were covered, mostly. Um, and so it, it was a resurgence, and I wanted it to be, I wanted the time to echo what was going on in her life. Because if I had made it only 10 years or 15 years, we were still pretty deep in war recovery in, in the early 50s um, and mid 50s. Mm -hmm. And also, her mom had moved on. It's not a spoiler, if you find out early, her mom remarried and had moved on and had another child. And I wanted that life to be well on the way. And she struggled with that because her mom seemed to have not forgotten, but healed and forgiven and, and moved on and where Hazel felt still stuck. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. You've talked about synchronicities 
for you in this process. Will you talk with us a little about that? Oh, I love this subject. But I'm going to flip it to you just for a second. When you're doing your research, do you find that every once in a while something rises up that makes you know you're on the right track? Like something so synchronistic that you're like, okay, I'm on the right track. Yes, very much so. Um, I'm thinking of specifically synchronicities. I mean, I had the experience two days ago where I'm working on a, a book now about a, a man who I, I got a letter from uh, a fellow uh, last year who reminded me of certain things that we had done together, and I don't remember this, ma'am. And I don't remember these things. And I was in the film business, and he said, his capper was, do you remember when we ran into each other at the Cannes Film Festival and you were holding a baby? And I wondered for a moment if the child was mine. Oh, <laughs> my gosh! Oh, my gosh! <laughs> and, and my thought was, I really, oh, then he said, but I knew that wouldn't be possible. And I thought, well, I really hope that wasn't possible because that was not the nature of our relationship because I have no memory. But then... I wanted to do an exploration of a woman with a flawed memory and a man who approaches oh her, who may or may not be telling the truth. But I was having a period because I'd gotten about 100 pages into this book, and then I went on a massive book tour. Uh, and then I came back, and I thought, this is crap. This is just <laughs> terrible. Never works. This just doesn't tie together. So I had to completely reconfigure those first 100 pages. And I got to the point this weekend of 175 pages, and there was a moment where the woman sees the man, and he turns around, and I saw his face, and I thought, I understand where the book is going See? completely so now. Imagine. I saw this imaginary face, and I just had to start taking mad dash notes with a pen on scraps of paper wherever I had them. And that was weird. And which is what we wanted to do mm -hmm. when we sit down to write it all. Right. So I'll tell you two stories. Um, one, I was I, I wrote most of the novel um, during when we couldn't really travel yet. So I couldn't yet go to England and busy without 97 swabs up my nose and you know what I mean. So I finished the novel and it was, we were much freer to travel. So it was last summer actually. And so I went over there for almost a month. And I was in Oxford and Binsey and London and Cornwall. Everywhere you read about in the book, I visited and came back and infused the book with it. But two, a, cra a lot of crazy things happened. But one of them was when I went to Binsey. I hired a tour guide to take me through Binsey because I didn't want to just walk around. I wanted to hear the history. I wanted to know if I was missing anything. I really believe in getting your feet on the soil, walking around, what does it smell like? What does it look like? Um, where on the river would she have disappeared? What did, what did the roots, I really wanted to get in there. So um, she was, her name was Tabby, and she was an Endeavor fan. Do I have Endeavor fans in <laughs> Best show on PBS ever. Anyway, it takes place in Oxford. And so um, we're walking along, and we're walking down this long road of Binsey. So the river flows down the side of Binsey. There's a pub called The Perch and a church, an, a medieval church, and the well. And the road runs straight from the pub all the way down to the church. There's whitewashed houses, a little schoolhouse, everything you read about. And we're walking down the road, and she pointed to the woodlands all above Binsey. And she said, those are called Wickford Woods. 
And I said, oh, that sounds so much like whisper wood. That's crazy. We keep walking. And she says, yes, luckily, because it's so beautiful. I said, my characters, Hazel and Flora Lee, would go up in those woodlands. They would tell the story of Whisperwood. And she said, well, the family who owns it has put it in the conservation so it won't be developed. And they left it all to their daughter, Hazel. Crazy. So I knew, I'm like, what? I was so, like, non-professional. What are you talking about? And I said, that's my character's name. And she was so British. She she just kept walking. She was like, oh, that's how the story is. So that was one of the things that That's a good one. I know. I felt like that is too, I mean, the Whitford Woods was a little creepy, but the hazel was enough for me. and I still feel like it, it, the, the stories that rise up out of that land that are just tidbits in there, like fries wide, and all these things that are in there, that there's all these tangential stories in there. So the second crazy thing that happened is um, my store, my um, antiquarian bookshop is called um, Hogan's Rare Bookshop. And it is run by a man named Edwin and his son named Tim. And Edwin and Tim have owned the store for generations. And Tim and Hazel are very close. And when something goes awry at the beginning of the story, Tim is kind of her backup. And so once I got back to London, I hired, again, someone to help me meet and talk to an antiquarian bookseller. So the tour guide showed me all around Mecklenburg. And then we walked to this antiquarian bookstore right where mine is set. And it was called Buyers and Buyers. And it is on a row in London called Cecil Court. Has anybody been to Cecil Court? It is nothing but antique bookstores and antique map stores. It's a skinny little alley, and it has a lamppost right in the middle of it that they fight to keep gas all the time. They, don't, they won't let London turn it into an electric street lamp. So it's all antique bookstores and antique maps. And I walked into this antiquarian bookstore and said, I'm here to, to meet the owner. I, you know, this tour company has arranged it. And he said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm the owner. And I said, hi, my name is Patty. And he said, nice to meet you. My name is Tim. <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, it's the again. I was like, what is happening? I said, that is the name of my bookseller. He goes, you're going to name him after me. I said, no. I, okay, that is already his name. I love that. C.S. Lewis fans, come on, raise your hands, everybody, right, the whole room. So I loved uh, Once Upon a Wardrobe. I loved Becoming Mrs. Lewis, yeah. it was called. So you looked at Lewis fictionally in two very different points of view from the, the story of his marriage, late in life marriage, as you all know, to an American woman who his friends may or may not have liked. And then in this... <laughs> Later story of this little girl, not so little, teenage girl. No, she's a college student. Yeah, I haven't read it for a while. She's a college student who has a very sick younger brother. And her younger brother reads, uh, Narnia reads, uh, and uh, needs to know if Aslan is real. And it, it just... So ta uh, we want to hear about your relationship with CSLS and how you came to both of those places. Absolutely. Um, so um, my relationship with Lewis uh, started when I was very young. 
of course, he passed before I was born. Actually, he passed only a few months before I was born. But um, my dad, as I mentioned before, was a pastor. And so our house was covered in C.S. Lewis books. And I read him my whole life. But I was a bookworm my whole life. I would read a cereal box if nothing else was around. <laughs> and I read probably some books of his that I was too young to read. Like, I think I read, I was 11 or 12 when I read the Screwtape Letters. Um, I was terrified that the devil was following me. But um, I've always been fascinated by him. Agree, whether I agreed with him or didn't agree with him, here is a man who changed 20th century literature. He wrote science fiction, Paralandra. He wrote Christian apology. He wrote children's fantasy. He wrote novels. Uh, my favorite of his is um, Till We Have Faces, which is a myth retold. He retells the myth of Cupid and Psyche. So he, here's a man who could literally do anything. And I'd always been fascinated by him, but I would have never written about him until I discovered his improbable love story. And for those of you who know anything about it, it has been memorialized in a movie called Shadowlands, starring Deborah Winger. And in it, she spends the whole movie dying, and he spends the whole movie... It's Anthony Hopkins, right? Anthony yep, Hopkins. yep. Anthony Hopkins, who then a couple months later plays Hannibal Lecter. So. <laughs> but um, he, it, it, she, she spends the whole movie dying. He spends the whole movie in grief, and it is, it is a tearjerker, beautifully well done movie. But I wanted to know her story when I discovered that her, if nothing had ever been written from her point of view, I was very curious how this American-born woman, born and never left New York except for six months when she went to Hollywood to write movies, and it was miserable. And this man who had, was born in Ireland and had never left Ireland or England except for the six months he was in war in France. How did these two people come together? She was an atheist. She was um, of Jewish descent. She was married with two children. And here was this confirmed old Oxford Don bachelor who lived with his brother. And I discovered that they were pen pals first, and none of that had been told. So I didn't mean to write so much about Lewis. I wanted to write about her. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about her courage and her bravery to change her life. I think all of my books at their core are about women who are willing to change their life, who are willing to get unstuck. And this woman in the late 40s was willing to do something that everybody told her she could not and should not do, and that was to build a new life. And nobody in England supported her because all the Oxford Dons were not happy about this Jewish American woman who burst into their lives. All of the people in America were telling me she could not take her sons and start a new life, and she did it. And what I discovered along the way was that that love story, so rarely told, completely changed the last decade of Lewis's work. It did. Completely Absolutely. Changed the last decade. What, what was it? Surprised by Joy? Was that? That was his biography. Yeah. But um, a grief observed is right, her right, death. right, right, right. Um, so yeah, he, she changed. He wrote till we have faces with her. He um, wrote a book on the Psalms with her. He wrote about the four loves after finally experiencing all four, four loves, all four Greek words for love. So the work we have from him. And if you talk to nearly anybody who has read A Grief Observed during a time of grief, they will say that book felt like a best friend and a companion. And that book obviously did not exist without her. Right.
We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. I think we can open it to questions now. A microphone will come to you. We're on the radio, so do speak into the mic. Yes, we have a wonderful uh, affiliation with WCRI, which is a classical station on Block Island. So uh, it's a nice new thing this year. Thank you so much for sharing all of these wonderful insights in your book. I have to admit, I married a man who named both of his sailboats the Dawn Treader. So (laughs) we love love C.S. Lewis. But I just want to know, what are you working on now? All right, do we have any more questions? (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you not like to talk about work in progress? I'm kidding. I I don't mind talking about it if I can. I just can't because I don't know where it's headed yet. Right. I know. Don't be sorry. I'm really excited about what I'm working on. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what inspired it. I thought I would write about Beatrix Potter. Um, I ended up on not writing about her in, in a big way. But when I was doing my research about her, she was an extraordinary woman. Um, she was not just the author of Peter Rabbit. She was a scientist. She was a, she, her sketches of the natural world are some of the finest there are, especially mushrooms and fungi. She was a farmer. She had a love story with her publisher. Like, her life is fascinating. But one of the things I discovered about her was that she grew up in Victorian England. So being an author and being a woman of her own means was not encouraged. She kept a coded journal so nobody would know what she really thought. She made up her own coded language so nobody could read her journals and know that she was bucking this Victorian system or what she really thought about the people who visited her parents or what they wanted out of her life. She fell in love with her publisher and they were um, forbidding it. And so she, to have her own private thoughts, she made up her own language. Well, years later after she passed, some man spent 30 years decoding her language. So we now can read those journals, but I don't think she wanted us to. Wow, so, that's extraordinary. I know. So that inspired the story. Fascinating. That's not what it's about. Hi, Patty and Deborah. It's so wonderful to see you both up here together, two of my favorite writers. And I just, first of all, I just am entranced by hearing you. Um, I love your books. I always have loved your books. And I, I right just, thank you. Um, I will just say this. We are agency sisters. We have the same literary agency. And um the two, the two best. I mean, they're all wonderful, but oh, mine they are, and they're best friends. Mine is, An- are best mine friends. is Andrea. Hers is Meg Ruley, and uh, Meg and I are very close for you know for many years. But um, first of all, I'd like to say I I feel as if there is an agency kind of vibe, which is yeah, so, I think it's like really getting to the heart of things. You know, really that's what they love, and I feel like they encourage us who try to do that. Not just as writers, but as as people, yeah. it's true. It's a very personal place, but you certainly do that. Yeah, and one thing I'm just, just hearing you speak, and, and I love your historical, uh, everything you write, but you're so brilliant. Like, oh, <laughs> you are. Now, but hearing you speak so knowledgeably about the, you know, the history and the backstory to what you write about, and 
I was just, it, it hit me because you're not an outliner. And Deborah's not either, and I'm not either. And I feel like being an outliner to me seems more scholarly somehow, you know, in a way like you're more used to doing it in an academic way. And I, I kind of just wanted to mention that even more than a question that just think it's so incredible and admirable that you are not an outliner and you write from so, with such heart, but you have so much uh, knowledge about your subjects. And it, it really is like you're I mean, this, I hope this sounds right, but you're literally gushing with love for your subject. And, you know, I mean, it really comes through, the passion. Um, so, I, you know, I just wanted to say that and to just, J.R.A. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say this. What, what's interesting, Luann, about um, the outlining thing is, what is an outliner? Okay, an outliner. So we have a, a, a like a shorthand way in the writing world of talking about, are you a plotter or a pantser? Like, do you plot your whole book out, or do you just fly by the seat of your pants? And I heard Neil Gaiman be um, interviewed one time, and he described it as architect versus gardener. And I really like that, because I think I garden with a little architecture around it. So I don't, when people say they outline the whole book, they, they have, you know, hundreds, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of words about this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. What I have and what I spend a lot of time on the front end doing is, what do my characters want? Why can't they get what they want? I love being a psychoanalyst. So what would they do to get what they want? What is holding them back? And then how would they like, get turned upside down if they get what they want? And so when I, instead of outlining, I spend my time on those things. Because if I know the character, the character will, the story will unfold, right? And, and I was scared about this one, about Laura Lee, because I've never truly written mystery. Luann is a, is a master at that. I am not. And so I did try to find the ending and had not so much an outline, but this will happen and then we'll find out this, right? I didn't have any idea what was in the middle. But I knew what we found, and I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. I was wrong about the ending. And so it was another lesson to me that if I, and I, I, want, I want to put this to you after I answer this because I want to see if it's the same for you and for you, Luann, in that if I learn to trust the creative process, if I learn to trust the murky and beautiful subconscious, if I learn to trust what is being laid down in the story, um, it will show me things that I that are better than what I had planned, if that makes sense. So I had a plan for the ending, and I wasn't happy with it. And my agent was happy with it. Your agent was happy with it. They let everybody read it over there. And um, and then, and I called and I said, I'm not. And they're like, well, we are. And I said, just give me like two weeks. I just, I feel like there's a better ending. And there was, and it was there all along. And so if I was so strict with myself about the outline, I wouldn't, it, it wouldn't, for me, have, have the heart and soul that it does without it. But that doesn't mean I head into it willy-nilly, right? I do, I do, and I do a ton of research about landscape, history, place. And the best part about that research is that I'll find out something that I can pull out that can flip the story on its head, like St. Pride's Wife or um, the triacle well. If I hadn't done my research and just Bindi was Bindi, it wouldn't, for me, it wouldn't have been half as interesting. 
So I'm researching, writing, researching, writing, and all these different threads. But I don't have a, then this happened, then this happened. Thank you. I, I had it. I heard it ex uh, explained, a, a journalist I was talking to a few months back said, are you, um, do you chart your books with a compass or with a map? Oh my and I God. like that. So I don't have a full map where I know exactly where I'm going, but I do have a compass. Yeah. I have an idea. I like that. And because I write thrillers that always have a big twist, and the, the plots are very complex, I write a lot of what if questions. Like, what if this character means that. And, that, and I work on the characters, and I also do kind of this spread out timeline, which is very important, particularly in thrillers, which are plot heavy. And if you have, you know, there's a moment at which this glass is hit over someone's head, and then it's swept out of the room or something, you have to know exactly when the glass is here, and when the glass is out of the room. So the calendar really helps yeah. to, so you're not showing the glass two days later. And my, when I get copy edits back, my biggest mess that has to get fixed is timeline stuff. Yeah. Like, Patty, there's nine days in that week. Like, you know, that kind of thing. So, but do you find that the more you trust, and Luann, I want you to chime in, the more you trust the creative process, the better the story is if you don't stick to Well, absolutely. I'll, I'll talk about Reef Road. So Reef Road is a, a, it's a story that's based on the murder of my mother's best friend. My mother's friend was murdered when the two of them were 12 years old, and it's an unsolved crime. And uh, I've always known about it, and I know that the case was reopened from a friend who's a DA in 2008, and then it was shunted aside again because, you know, the DNA evidence was compromised, etc. But when COVID shut the world down, I decided to do the research into the real crime. And the more I researched it, I, there were, you know, years and years of newspaper articles. I got the coroner's report, all that. I decided in the process that I didn't want to write it as nonfiction because I really wanted to explore the concept of generational trauma. This idea, like Hazel in this book, Hazel is affected by what happened to her sister. It really is the seminal event of her her youth, more than even the Pied Piper program, and it changes everything for her. I wanted to examine that, and with fiction, you have more malleability. And then I, I wanted to go to a darker, twistier place. But no, I, I didn't really, so I, after a certain point, I do start writing. And the thing that I allowed myself to trust with Reef Road, it is a little bit of a meta novel, but all of the, um, chapters from the writer's point of view. You're very much in her head. She's very self-referential. She's talking a little bit to you, the reader. Um, and it's odd. But then I, I allowed myself to trust it. The other chapters are, are really more of a plot-driven thriller. But it worked. At the end, it worked. But I, I said to my husband, who's somewhere here, I said, I don't know if anybody's ever going to read this book. I, just, I don't know. But you trusted it. I, I forced myself. Like, yeah. Each book you write, in the squishy middle, you more you trust it more each time. Yes. That it's going to find its way. Yes. Because there is that moment where you think, I, I just don't know if I this will be know. a book. Yeah, this is, it's over. What about you, Luann? Jump in. Oh, sure. Um, thank you. Those are great points. And it's funny that Deborah and I were talking about it just earlier today. You know, we're both, we both have works in progress. And we were talking about character versus plot. And I think both of us agree that character creates plot, you know, and um, I obviously you do too, Patty, you know, and I, I 
you know, especially, I mean, I, Deborah and I, I think both write thrillers, but they're thrillers that are really about, they're more about character, yep. family, relationships, and then the way that that leads to suspense, because obviously all relationships do, you know, and, um, you know, so I, I, you know, I just really love hearing how you feel about that and how, you know, it's, it, it you know, and again, back to the outline, you know, and what you said about Andrea and Meg loving your original ending, but then you know that there was something else and something deeper. And I think that's exactly I'm glad you listened to your gut. Yeah. Because I love the ending. Yeah. Yeah. But it takes a while, right, to Mm -hmm. to trust that. It does. It does. does. But but I think that's exactly what Deborah was saying today. So, yeah, anyway. Talking about that character-driven thriller, I think one of the best films of... character driving a thriller it would be vertigo if you haven't seen vertigo lately rewatch vertigo if you recall uh he jimmy stewart is a cop who's chasing someone at the beginning i will not tell you the whole movie but they're on rooftops and he thinks he's going to fall and he doesn't and then the criminal falls and he watches him fall to his death and he experiences crippling vertigo and everything follows from that so character point. I think we have time for like two more questions. Thank Hi. you both. Um, I have a question for Patty and then for both of you, or th- all three of you. Um, Patty, what was the event in your life that transformed you from a nurse into an author? And then when I'm reading a really good book, I become so immersed. My husband hates to see me with a book in hand because I become part of it till it ends. And when do you know enough to end it? Because there are some books that I read and I don't, I just don't want it to end. And some authors are really good at ending it well. And there are others that I'm like, oh, it left me like I want more. And it, so there's um, a real... I feel like a good author knows when to do that, and how do you, because you must be immersed in your characters, how do you know when to end it? Oh, wow. Okay, good question. I was going to say, okay, I'm going to start with the nurse to author. Um, this is a whole talk, so I'm going to condense it. Um, so I was always a book, like what I mentioned, I always had my nose in a book. Um, who here got in trouble for reading when they were a kid? Right? You wouldn't be here on a Monday night if you listening to us talk about books, and I was... Um, I always was fascinated by story. In high school, I took Latin, and, and I was obsessed with mythology. So, but I didn't think being an author was a thing you could do in the world, right? So when I was growing up the, in the late 60s, early 70s, what did people say to us? Do you want to be a teacher, a nurse, yes. or a secretary, yeah. right? And I did want to be a nurse, and I loved being a nurse, and I have a master's degree in pediatric nursing. I loved it, but um, I was always secretly wanting to write, and. I, I think the older I got them, I, I always thought of the books as the living things. I never gave off the author that much thought. And then I met an author in real life, one of my favorite authors in the world, Anne River Siddons. And I met her and knew her. I was lucky enough to know her. And But the first time I went to a book signing for her, I looked at her, and all of a sudden, authors became human to me. Mm. Like there was a person behind the book. And she had gone to the same university I had gone to. She lived in Atlanta, which is where I live. And, and, and it, it was this kind of coalescing moment for me that said, this is a thing to do in the world. Um, and I signed up for nighttime classes. My kids were five, three, and one. And I started writing. I just wanted to see if I could do the one thing that had sustained me for all of my life. 
And then how to end it. Um, usually what happens for me is that I'm answering a question and when it answers the question, the book is you, oh, uh, so for me, I started as an actress, and I had a nice, lovely decade as an actress. And there was a kind of a seismic change in my life that led my first husband and me to move to Paris. And uh, I knew I had two little children, and I knew it was really the end of my acting career. There are very few uh, Jane Birkins and uh, Jean Seberg's, you know, Anglo people who, who have complete careers in France. And I was at a dinner one night, and I was seated next to a German woman named Evie Fullenbach. And she ran um, the development department at Le Studio Canal Plus, which is a French film studio. And she asked me to be a reader in English. They were looking for native English-speaking readers. And I thought, oh, is that a job? And so I was living in Paris. My children were little. And my first assignment was Possession by A.S. Byatt. So I'm sitting in a park in Paris reading this glorious book. And I have to read it, synopsize it, and do a page of comments. And I thought, I, I didn't know this could be a job. I mean, it paid very little. So I started. Uh, this path as a reader in France, and then came back to the States and was hired by, wait for it, Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> and I was the story editor at Miramax in the 90s, which was a pretty cool place to be and a pretty amazing job and uh, very intense. So I come to writing through the editorial chair. And how do I know when it's over? It's the same thing. Um, uh, you know, like I said, when, when this character turned around this weekend on the page, and I thought, oh, now I know where it's going. And it's, you know, 100 or more pages, and I know how they need to go. I think one more. I have, <clears throat> I'd like to have you comment on the cover. Mm. Because I found something out about the cover as I was reading the book, which I had not noticed. <clears throat> but I also wanted to tell you that in our book club, um, a couple of years ago, we read a, a YA book called The War That Saved My Life. This evacuation of all the children from London. And it's about the story of, of a girl and her brother who were sent to um, a home outside of London in the countryside. And this war saved her life because of some circumstances that she underwent. Anyway, so there was a little bit of a connection between that and Flora Lee. But if you could just talk about the cover for a second. Um, I don't know what you said. Okay, the cover. So we don't have, and now I want you to talk about your cover because your cover artist is here. Um, but we don't have, or I don't have, a lot of control over my cover. What I have is veto power, meaning if I hate it, I can say I hate it. Um, but what usually happens if I do that, they give me other options, and they're worse than the one. <laughs> so that I have to say, fine, the, the last one, um, the first one. But when, when, when Atria, so I call, I'm a published with Simon & Schuster Atria. And when Atria bought the book, they said, send us your ideas for the cover. And um, I sent them a whole vision board I had for the cover. And... I said, I didn't want it to look, even though I love those covers, I didn't want it to look like Becoming Mrs. Lewis, Surviving Savannah, or Once Upon a Wardrobe. All three of those have a woman walking away with a hat on. And I said, I just, I need this one to kind of pull away from that. Not that I don't like those kind of covers, but I want something different. And um, 
when they when they sent me the cover, it was Fourth of July weekend, a couple years ago. Books take a long time. And I clicked on it, and I opened it with like one eye, like, oh my god, because my cover for Surviving Savannah was a to the death battle for that cover. The first cover was just, I cannot even tell you. So it looked like Pocahontas in a canoe. So, so I was, I, I was like, had one eye open, and I opened it, and I just went, that literally, that's it. They changed nothing about the original cover, which is so unusual. Um, but what did you notice from, from the well, book? the fact that the river is yeah. iridescent. Yes. Isn't I never amazing? noticed it. Yeah. And I think I might have heard it. It is. Yeah, it shimmers. Yeah. 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 I might have heard you. I don't know if it was a piece by Carol Fitzgerald at some point from being at a corner.com. But anyway, yeah, I read something about the river. You wouldn't know that. Yeah, so the river and the horizon both shimmer, which is an echo back to the shimmering doors that they walk through. But it's a, I think it's the favorite cover I've ever had. And one more little thing. The, um, I, well, I was having a long chat with my editor the other day about the book I'm working on. And we were, she was talking about how happy, the book has just been an incredible experience. Um, and they were talking about how happy they were, you know, at Publisher Housewives. And she goes, now I can admit we were nervous about the cover. I said, I was never nervous about the cover. Because usually historical fiction has a woman on it somewhere. And, and that seems to be a theme these days. Yes. In reading a lot of the comments that are made through um, friends in fiction, yes. there, is, there seems to be a uh, revolt against women. I know. And I'll be super quick. So I am a, I'm with a small publishing house that's distributed by Simon & Schuster. It's not inside Simon & Schuster. It's a distribution client. Which, did everyone see Simon & Schuster's being bought by KKR? I the deal went through today. Things are happening. So isn't he, that, he is in, has been in publishing, right? So at least he's someone familiar with publishing. That's good. That's good. Okay. I have had a little bit more control over my covers. I've been more involved in the process. And the lovely Becky Ford is here, who's both a writer and an artist. And she worked with me on all three books. And I, I have gorgeous book covers. I do not have typical thriller book covers. My covers are all of something really beautiful with something wrong with it. Like a reef road, it's a bird of paradise. And if you look closer, it has a spider in the middle of it. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author Deborah Goodrich-Royce. The WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>